Hi, our scripture reading today is from Mark 7, 14 through 23. Uh, feel free to follow along with me in our worship guide on page 6 or on the screen behind me. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. It's a delight to be here with you. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Conversations with Jesus. And uh, this one's a doozy, right? We've got the Pharisees and teachers of laws having a conversation with Jesus, and we've got language coming out like lewdness and uh, greed and murder and all this kind of stuff. So this will be a fun conversation to see uh, what Jesus is trying to communicate to the teachers of the law, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Um, clean and unclean, defiled, undefiled. Now this becomes uh, the, the language and the metaphor of the day. What is meant by that? What does it mean to be clean? What does it mean to be unclean? And uh, it's fascinating because I'll just give you some illustration of how that works in the Shu family household. One of the things that, you know, if we, were to, if, if we were to say, hey, this is how we've taught our kids about what's clean and unclean, we have this principle, this guiding principle in our family. It's simply this, boys have cooties. We have three girls, boys have cooties. Icky. Ooh, right? It's like, this is going to serve you well, and it's going to serve us well, hopefully until they're about 30. <laughs> There's another way in which we talk about cleanness and uncleanness, uh, and that is when people wind up being sick in our household. You know how it works. A beloved family member comes to you and seeking some sympathy, they go, oh, I don't think I'm feeling so well. And we lovingly gather around, if not physically, but like in our minds. We try to be supportive. We reach out and point a finger and say, unclean! Stay away! Right? Sometimes variety. Patient zero! And we go on to proceed to communicate that there's a social contract here. If you're sick and anyone else gets sick, you're supposed to feel guilty about it. Now, I'm sure that doesn't work like that in your household, um, but I'm confessing. But you get it, right? There are times and situations where it's clear that rules and procedures and systems are important to follow for your own benefit and for the benefit of others. Leading up to this passage here in Mark chapter 7, Jesus has this interaction with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Basically, this is a place where they're complaining to Jesus and saying, hey, what gives? Your disciples are eating before ceremonially washing their hands, right? It's not a hygiene issue 
which, you know, you would get eebie-jeebies anyway. But they're watching, it's not that issue, it's the issue of whether or not they've ceremonially, ceremonially purified themselves before they engage in a meal. And, um, you know, this is an important thing for a good Jewish person. And um, Jesus actually says, you know what, take a look at this. And um, he says, I don't think you got it right. Jew. Jesus is a good Jew, right? And yet, what he does is he sort of turns on its side the, the teachings of the law in such a way that ultimately makes far more sense and is far more consistent with who God is and what he wants to do in the world through us and the gospel. But he does so in such a way that answers the deepest yearnings of our heart, as you might expect Jesus to do. Jesus calls the Pharisees and the teachers of the law hypocrites. And he says in verse, uh, this is again prior to our passage here, he says, you're the kind of hypocrites that Isaiah spoke of. With their lips they honor me, but with their hearts they turn away from me. And he complains and he says, you know what? Your commands are human commands and they actually entrap your heart. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. He says, that's not good for anyone. It's certainly not the gospel I came to preach. So Jesus is about to duke it out with the Pharisees on some of the most important traditions and rules that the people of God have followed for almost 13, 1400 years at this point. And if you're a good Jew, you wash your hands ceremonially before you eat. Why wasn't Jesus' disciples doing that? So we get to our passage in verse 14. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. It's what comes out of a person that defiles them. It's really the sermon in a sentence. But since I'm getting paid by the word, I'm going to keep going. Jesus is radically confronting the purity laws that every good Jewish citizen believed that they needed to obey in order to have right standing with God. And Jesus is now calling the enforcers of this system hypocrites. People actually believe they're worshiping God by following these commandments, but, but Jesus is saying, no, these are human commands. So make no mistake, this is radical. Jesus is kind of like turning up on end how any good Jew at the time would have thought. It's kind of like, the impact of it's kind of like if one of my daughters when they're in third grade would slowly turn to me with that look in their eyes that says, I know something you don't know. And declaring flatly, boys do not have cooties. Oh, oh no! It would be as if the infirmed in our midst, the unclean in our household says, quoting the serpent in Genesis, you surely shall not die. <sighs> it's like, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is the way in which we can be sure that we are like right, we're safe, we're good. And I'd like to simply draw your attention to the fact that we like rules. We like procedures. We like prescribed ways of interacting. And we like them because it tells us how people ought to be behaving. 
And if we're honest, we like them mostly because of how it governs others and how they ought to be behaving. The ecosystem or rules of cootiness becomes something that I rely upon to govern and to protect my daughters. And if you have boys, it's, you, know, you flip it. it it's good because it gets to protect people I love, and yet at the same time, it gives me peace of mind. The rules of how the unclean, or excuse me, the, the infirmed in our midst, are to remind them not to infect others. And yet, I like to make sure they know these, they're obeying these rules so that I don't get sick. Peace of mind. The same sort of thing happens in our relationship with God. We often develop a reliance upon rules and expectations and oughts that we impose upon ourselves and upon others to govern our relationship with God. And so you see, the more that we can govern people through rules and laws and browbeating, we actually get to experience a peace of mind. And we do this either by comparing ourselves with others, right? Because, you know, we keep the rules better than they do, and oh my, they're not following the rules and browbeating, and I get to look down my nose, and I get to feel better about who I am in my relationship with God. Often forgetting that we grade ourselves on a curve. I'm here to confess to you this morning that I am a good driver. I'm a really good driver. Awesome. I keep the rules. I stay in the middle of the lane. I use my directional when I change lanes. I don't cut people off. I never cross into a bike lane. I have too many cyclist friends. I keep the rules. I even use my directional in parking lots because it's kind to the other drivers to know what my intentions are. I am God's gift <laughs> to drivers throughout Southern California. Now, uh, I have been blessed with uh, one of those early warnings, like pre-collision sort of uh, sensor thingies, like these warning systems. Um, we just celebrated our 32nd anniversary. Think about that one. <laughs> the early warning. Okay. It kind of it kind of works like. I don't know if you know what that's like. I got one of those early warning systems. Before any sense of danger coming up, and clearly because I'm a good driver, it's not necessary. Sometimes it comes with tones. And it's really fun because, you know, when you're an awesome driver, you really don't need aids. Right? Especially when it's like, oh, you didn't use your directional. Or, you know, you're a little too close. And since I'm an awesome driver... Um, unnecessary. I, yeah, I used my directional. No, that wasn't a rolling stop. Yes, I made a full stop before making a right on red. Well, that's all fine and good until all of a sudden I recognize, you know, we, we just bought a used car that has, like, it beeps. I say it came equipped with the Holy Spirit. Because all of a sudden I'm driving along, minding my own business every once in a while, beep! Lane detect departure... So. No. Needs calibration. Just like my previous system. Ignore. Oh, well, let me think about that. It happened again in the same spot. I guess I'm... Uh, yeah, 
oh, I guess I did depart the lane without using my directional. Huh. And what's really annoying about this car equipped the Holy Spirit is now I'm getting convicted that my previous early warning detection system was perhaps more accurate than I knew. And that perhaps it indicated that there were places where I had transgressed my own sense of being a good rule keeper that I had no awareness of. And in fact, all it ever really did, my car equipped the Holy Spirit, reminding me that, I have, um, that my rightness is really more of a self-rightness, which sounds a lot like a self-righteousness. And that's what happens. When you believe you're God's gift to anything, when you believe that you're following some sort of ecosystem that says as long as you keep the rules, you're going to be right with God, and your system allows you to look down your nose to others, that's not righteousness that you're developing. That's self-righteousness. This, then, is what Jesus is confronting. He's confronting the false notion that the presence of an external set of rules is going to make us right and acceptable before him. And specifically, what he's saying is you, it is if, that what you eat, right, the state of one's stomach, so to speak, is not nearly as important as the state of one's heart. Verse 17, after he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Hmm? Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach and out of the body. N.T. Wright says about this, that the purity laws, he's suggesting, point to the real need of humans for a deeper purity, a purity of motive, a purity of heart. Why do you make and keep rules? For whose benefit are they? For whose peace of mind? And for whose glory? Verse 20, he goes on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. An entire list. Sexual immorality, theft and murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from the inside and defile a person. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is not that he came to give us a better set of rules that will somehow make us a better person. No. The good news of the gospel of Jesus is that he's in the business of transforming our hearts, the unseen dimensions of us, so that we become the kinds of people that are kind and loving and forgiving and life-giving to others. And not because it's something we have to do to be able to please God, but it's because it's something we naturally do because it's the kind of person we have become. So if you're yearning to become more kind and loving and less frustrated and imprisoned by your habitual sins, you want to pay attention to whether or not you're understanding the gospel as Jesus is trying to communicate here, or if perhaps you might have fallen for a counterfeit gospel. A counterfeit gospel invariably will not free us, but only further enslave us. So what's the gospel? 
What's the right way of thinking about Christ's teaching and Christ's work on the cross that actually cleans us, that actually transforms our hearts so that we can live the undefiled life that we yearn for? You see, what Jesus is confronting is the tendency that so many of us have, a tendency shared with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that we must, that, you know, that we feel like we need to just sort of, where'd my clicker go? All right, Chris, we're going manual. So what the teachers and the Pharisees are, are doing, are they're saying, hey, you need to measure up. You need to work harder. You need to try harder. If you sin, you fail. You've got to feel that guilt and shame and turn it into a harder effort. Entrapped with a need to keep trying. Yes, we need to give more and serve more and love more. Yes, we need to do that but not so that we can be more acceptable in God's eyes. That's a treadmill, treadmill, or actually an escalator to hell. Not just the metaphors. This is the poison that Jesus is very interested in confronting. Don't get it confused. So I don't know about you, but when you speak harshly to a loved one, when you fudge the truth a little bit, when some reaction is provoked out of you when, when a driver cuts you off. And that self-righteousness creeps up. All of these sins, how do you feel? Anger? Judgmental? Perhaps you feel shame because you've dishonored God by acting in ways that bring him pain. And then what do you do with that? Does, do you believe that that sorrow, that shame, that, that beating oneself is going to, you know, as long as you just try harder to keep the rules, is that what you believe is going to set you right in your relationship with God? Jesus says, oh, that's not good news. Okay, so what is the gospel and what are its counterfeits? Um, Chris, if we can go with the slide. What I would like to do is to be able to share with you this idea of the gospel as understood on a two-by-two. Now, a two-by-two is a very fascinating tool used by, you know, uh, smart people, consultants and all that to kind of hold uh, and evaluate things. So, for example, let's think about parenting. Oftentimes, you'll have one extreme that says, hey, we need to teach our kids how to be able to keep the rules and be able to, you know, develop grit and you got to they got to have real accomplishments, and they got to achieve, et cetera, and so forth. And then, of course, invariably, you have a parent on the other side that says, but we need to love them unconditionally, provide a supportive environment to be able to pick them up. You know, uh, when they fall, we need to give uh, trophies you know, for participating versus trophies when you win, right? And it's like, all right, is it law or is it grace? Now, invariably, in that tension, you never really feel like when you arrive at some sort of middle ground that everyone feels like they've been able to satisfy what, how they feel you know, they're supposed to parent. But if you place that on an XY axis, you can talk about keeping you know, high standards and encouraging people toward excellence while at the same time providing uh, a lot of love and support in that upper left-hand, upper right-hand quadrant. Okay? We're going to try this in understanding the dynamics of the gospel and to be able to illustrate why the gospel is so radically different from what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are offering. Next slide. 
So let's say we keep the law on one side, saying, hey, we need to keep God's holy, perfect standards. We need to live up to his, his, you know, the sinless life that he has called us to, and this is what we need to do because it's what we were called to. Across the bottom axis, we might be able to lay across this idea of God's incredible love and grace and mercy. You know, it is available to us freely, and it's immense, right? Now, if we, next slide, what we want is to recognize that what Jesus is condemning here in the upper, this corner, is the false religious spirit, where it says, I am going to try to measure up to God's grace without any need of God's help. I could do it myself, right? Earning keeping the religious purity laws, doing whatever it is in our head that we believe that God is honored and pleased by because we've tried really hard. I don't need God. That is the way of false religion. This is what Jesus is condemning in this, um, in this, par- in this pericope. Next slide will tell you the other alternative. That is, we say, God so loves us and so forgives us that we need not do anything else. This is what we're talking about when we're reading out of the um, New City Catechism. Why do I need to obey Christ? Right? I mean, if I'm totally loved and accepted and forgiven, why do I need to, need to satisfy um, God's holy law? Well, because it because our lives will show love and gratitude to God, and that we may be assured by the faith of our fruits, and that our godly behaviors may be able to win others to Christ. It matters that God is fully loving and accepting, but we also need to pay attention that there is um, a satisfaction of the standard of rightness and holiness that God calls us to. Lower left-hand corner... um, is a category for folks that may say, I'm not really sure that I believe about God, and so therefore I really don't need to satisfy his expectations of holiness, nor do I really need have any need for God's love and grace and forgiveness. I'll call that irreligion. And the upper right-hand corner is what we mean by the gospel. Where we recognize that we are unable to satisfy God's total perfect demands, right, Uh, at least on our own. And so we need God's grace and love and mercy found through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, right, who lived the perfect life that we might be able to, um, that might be credited to us as righteousness. The gospel is very different than the false religious um, system. Is this making sense to you? Do you see how you can have fall onto different places of, of counterfeits to the gospel? The gospel says Jesus lived through his life and his death and resurrection. His perfect life lived is counted to us. And so while we can't live the perfect life, Christ did and offers it on our behalf. And do you see what the the life and death and ministry of Jesus Christ offers? It shows us exactly how much God loves us because he was was willing to offer his son on our behalf. Not something that we've earned, right? But something that God has graced upon us. Huge, huge difference. The next three slides just talk about how oftentimes 
I would say folks that are exploring the claims of Christ reject it, not because they're rejecting the gospel, but because they're rejecting legalism. They're rejecting this notion that that people have to measure up in some way um, to be able to please God. And it's like, ah, that only produces self-righteous people. People who are more known about what they're object to rather than what they're for. Problem. This is typically the direction in which um, the false religious spirit actually works counter to bringing life uh, to us as followers of Jesus. Next set of slides show us um, really how we want to be able to move people from the religious performance place. This is many of us. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 7, where we say, hey, as long as we go to church, as long as we tithe, as long as we try our best, um, we'll be good enough. No, it's not how that works. You actually need to be able to surrender in many ways and be able to understand and to be able to receive God's grace shed upon you on your behalf no effort of your own because it was something that God offered as a free gift. That is what will change. That will transform our hearts. How we doing? Okay, if you have any questions, ask Jonathan. Next arrow. Same thing here. If the, if the person moving from the top left religion to the gospel, if there's anything that they need to know, they need to know that they need to not rely on their own merit. And for the person coming from this lower quadrant that says, hey, I'm totally loving, forgiven, I don't have to do a thing. They need to not lounge in their freedom. There is effort that is required to be able to engage in spiritual disciplines and, be, and become transformed as a follower of Jesus. This is why, this is why study and, and listening to sermons uh, becomes a very important disciplines to be, to be able to engage in this transforming work that Jesus is very interested in doing. And if you find yourself in the irreligion quadrant, you know, I think the invitation here would be do not assume by the hypocrisies don't reject the gospel based on uh, an understanding of the hypocrisy that you see. The encouragement would be not to reject the need for merit and, not, um, and to actually embrace the freedom that's found in Christ. That's what the call is. That's what we're being asked to do. Now, how do we make sure that we are keeping ourselves in the upper right-hand quadrant. There is one discipline that I will have a chance to be able to share with you today, and that is this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Now, what does that mean? There are two things, there are two almost seemingly contradictory statements that you want to hold together at the same time. One is that you are more sinful than you know. And the second one is you're more loved and accepted and forgiven than you can ever dare hope. There's something about needing to have both of these dynamics in your head at the same time that will allow you to be able to preach the gospel to yourself. Now, this is how it works. I'll say something. I'll offend someone. I'll wave kindly to someone who just cut me off. (sighs) 
look at the junk in my heart. And you kind of feel bad. You feel guilty. You feel, I'm a slug. And then it's like, depending on how good I'm doing, I used to say, and you need to be repentant over that. You need to feel sorry enough. Beat yourself up so that you could feel like you can enter into um, the embrace of God again. Because you're the one that transgressed the law, and I'm going to have to beat myself up in order to be able to receive God's love again. Now, if you think that way, that's religious performance. Because somehow we tell ourselves that we need to be able to, our standard of being able to receive God's grace and mercy is higher than God's. And so, oh, now, what you want to do is you want to say, you want to meet this recognition that I've broken the law, I've hurt, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not becoming the kind of person I want to be, I've transgressed God's law. Um, now, you want to immediately accompany that with the second statement. And yet, because of Christ, I'm forgiven. I'm loved. God sheds his mercy upon me in ways in which I, I don't feel like I'm worthy of, but that's what the scriptures say. And there's nothing more I can do that will add to my ability to be forgiven or accepted by God because in Christ it has all been done. And if you're like me, you'll go, that's cool. But you haven't seen what I've done. And I go back to beating myself up Feeling sorrow for it, as if feeling sorrow for it is going to make it more acceptable to God because, no, that's not how it works. And so I need to remind myself again that in Christ, I am forgiven. And there's this really odd tension between feeling unworthy and being reminded from the pages of Scripture that I am accepted. And I'm going to want to push back again. I'm going to say, oh, I'm a slug. And yet at the same time, God says, and we preach the gospel to ourselves, we're forgiven. We're the beloved. That very strange, odd dynamic is the recipe for understanding how to be transformed inwardly of the heart. Because I find myself being able to say, oh, is it possible that I'm actually loved and accepted and forgiven? God says, yes. But and that odd dynamic of feeling unworthy and being told that I'm worthy, not because of my own effort, but because of Christ, is a strange place of repentance and yet worship, shame, and being the beloved. That, my friends, that, that sense of astonished reverence where both of those pieces held together is the place of the gospel. That's what transforms you. It allows you to be able to say, oh, kind of like my car now. Oh, I guess I didn't use my directional. And I'm a little bit more open to two things. I transgress more than I think I do. 
And as I look over to my analog early warning system, I'm more loved and accepted than I could ever dare hope. This is how the gospel works. What I'd like to do is I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer to try to see if we can't um, preach the gospel to ourselves. So will you join with me in prayer? Just close your eyes. If this isn't your thing, just close your eyes. It's okay, everyone else is. Imagine yourself in conversation with God. Would you ask him to bring to mind some recent sin, some recent transgression, whether of act or of attitude? Now, if you have one in mind, can you agree with God that this hurt others? Can you agree with God that it it hurts you feeding a spirit of self-righteousness? Can you agree with God that it grieves him? Do you feel the shame? Do you feel discouragement? Do you feel the urge to correct something or to do something, try harder? This is called repentance. This is called confession. And now, before beating yourself up, Will you remind yourself? Look in God's eyes. He says, you're my beloved. You're loved more than you knew, than you know. You are forgiven. Mercy is extended to you. Can you embrace that? Do you feel yourself pushing away? And saying, but no, you don't know. And God goes, shh, shh, shh. Because of Christ, you're forgiven. And you melt back into that embrace. Do you feel that odd confession, guilt? but love and forgiveness. That is what worship feels like. Astonished that available to us through the work of Jesus Christ, the broken, unseen dimensions of us can be loved. Experience that and worship God. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we sin far more often than we know. And yet, Heavenly Father, we also recognize that because of the work of Christ on the cross, 
we are able to know and experience His grace, love, and forgiveness more than we actually feel like we deserve. And so, Lord, would you allow this dynamic to slowly work its way into our hearts so that it is transformed? And we find ourselves surprised as we preach the gospel to ourselves that we begin to resemble you in our actions, thought, and deed. This is undefiled. This is the cleanest of clean. Lord, would you allow the gospel to sit deep inside our lives? Let us not fall for a counterfeit religious performance or moving into license. Help us to experience and to know you at the foot of the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.